Hello there. You're listening to The Box Office Show. I'm Ryan Hill. And I'm Dylan Johnson. Today we're going to be talking about the box office numbers from last weekend and our box office predictions for this upcoming weekend. We'll also be doing a December grab bag. The grab bag has returned so that we can catch up on a handful of movies that we've been unable to talk about during the busy holiday corridor. In this one, we'll about Ridley Scott's Napoleon, David Fincher's The Killer, and more. I mean, you could have filled that in. <laughs> we'll be talking bit, about those films. I think the bit of me just reading the script, no matter what you put, is funny. It is kind of crazy. I'm also, I definitely put talk in there. I don't know if I, I guess I'm maybe deleted. Yeah, it. Yeah, maybe said, no, 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 no. He doesn't need to talk. He didn't, he didn't need to say that. No, 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 no. <laughs> Let me cut that. Let me cut that. Well, I had it there, but I was going to be like, mm, what would Dylan say? Would he say talk? Would he say chat? Would he go for chat? That's what I was going to throw in there, but I'm like, nah. In this one, we'll chop it up about it. Ridley Scott's Napoleon, <laughs> David Fincher's The Killer, and more. See, I'm never going to throw it to you again. That's it. <laughs> left out of the uh, the intros from now on. Come on. I'm too good. I'm just too right, good. Let's, let's talk about some news. Ridley Scott, speaking of him, he's already planning his next film. He's going to be making a bomb adaptation. Bomb is a short story that was the center of a huge bidding war between the studios to see who would be able to adapt it. And uh, 20th Century Fox, of course, under Disney, is the one that won that bidding war. And Ridley Scott is going to be the man to bring it to fruition. It is about a hostage negotiator that gets called in to talk with a man at the site of a newly uncovered World War II bomb. Ridley Scott's got to slow down, man. Talk that he's man gotta... Someone needs to talk down Ridley Scott. 85 and just cranking out project after project he just he won't quit he needs to slow down man he needs to take his time he's getting old he's got to really think about i just dude the last few ridley scott movies have not hit except for the last duel they just really have not been hitting well he's about to have gladiator 2 so we're gonna see how that goes you you know that i don't even like gladiator 1 you think i'm gonna enjoy gladiator 2 the gladiatoring you might (laughs) It could be he'll get you on board finally. I'm looking forward to that, though. I think that'll be some good stuff. But yeah, we have Gladiator 2 coming out next year, 2024. And then The Bomb will be coming after that. And I'm sure before Gladiator 2 even comes out and he starts working on The Bomb, we'll hear about his next next project. So, Bro, Ridley Scott dropping two movies a year is insane. Yeah. Gotta slow down. This is twice he's done it in the last three years. Yeah, well, I don't think the bomb's coming out uh, the same year. As Thank Gladiator Christ. Did, but it will be probably 2025. So again, he'll have had two films in 21, right? Last Duel and mm-hmm. Hasekuchi. Napoleon, 23. Gladiator 2, 2024. And then the bomb, 2025. Man's like 85 years old or something. Yeah, he's got to slow down. Craziness. Uh, and then... In other news, Scream 7's director, Christopher Landon, is no longer part of the project. Of course, this is a continuation of everyone under the sun leaving that film. Uh, Melissa Barrera, the lead actress, and then also Jenna Ortega, of course, left a few weeks ago. Well, 
one was fired and then Jenna Ortega, we believe, left in solidarity with Melissa Barrera. And now, again, we don't have the details on it, but either he was fired or he got himself out of that project. So very strange. We're going to see what comes of this franchise, but what was the most promising revival of a dormant horror franchise is now completely up in the air without its lead cast. This wasn't the same director for Scream 5 and 6. He mm-hmm. was coming out to the project. I think he did Happy Death Day. Um, so he hasn't had a Scream film under his belt, but you know he was the one that was chosen to helm this next one. And now he's gone. So we will see if they're ever able to get this back on track or they're yeah. going to start from scratch. But a crazy time coming from their their most successful, I mean, without adjusting for inflation, financially their most successful film earlier this year. Scream 6 came out earlier this year. Did really well. Mm-hmm. And now, at the end of it, the franchise just may never continue at all. So a wild downturn for that film. Yeah, so sad. Let's do our box office breakdown for December 22nd to December 24th. Coming in first place, Aquaman 2. It did it. It made it to first place with $27 million, which is terrible. Abysmal. Lower than Shazam 2. Wow. Yeah. It shocking. Is truly shocking. You know, if you fold in the holiday Monday, right, Christmas, then mm-hmm. it makes it over it, of course. But the three-day weekend, if you're comparing just the three-day weekend, it fell below Shazam 2's $30 million crazy again the implosion of the dceu is just astounding to watch can't wait for some sort of documentary to come out about it because it's just how do you bungle it this bad like this is the whimper that it goes out on devastating truly devastating especially as a dc fan but oh well warner brothers has wonka at least doing well in its second weekend with 18 million after that was the animated movie Migration with $12.5 million. Anyone But You, the Glenn Powell, Sydney Sweeney rom-com with $6 million. Salar with $5.4 million. The Iron Claw, $4.8 million. Hunger Games, Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, $3 million, bringing its domestic total to $150 million. Pretty good. Very, very impressive, yeah. The Boy and the Heron with $2.7 million. Godzilla minus one with 2.6 million, bringing its domestic total to 40 million. And Poor Things, finally going wider than it has been before in its limited release with 2.1 million. And we would do box office predictions for December 29th to the 31st, but there's not really anything new coming out, and all the movies that we just talked about for the for the past weekend are just going to be continuing their run in the next weekend, and we'll just do lower totals. So... We don't really have many predictions other than everything you just heard, but slightly less. Yeah, the only notable thing is The Color Purple, which came out on <clears> Christmas <throat> Day. So that's why it's left out of the three-day weekend here, because it came out on Monday. That'll be the only sort of new entrant probably into the top three. I, I'm going to imagine Aquaman 2 will be able to hold on to this top spot, but maybe not. We'll see if Color Purple is able to leapfrog it. But yeah, nothing major coming out. New Year's weekend, so it'll be a lot of holdovers for that weekend. But let's jump into our grab bag and pull Ooh. out the very first. Maybe that's what we should have done with uh, the grab bag stuff. It's just randomize it and see which one we talk about first. 
That would have been a cute. It one. is a grab bag, yeah. Let's do that but, the next time. Yeah, we'll get them. We'll get them next time. This time, though, we have pulled we'll out get, the polling. We, we, can get, the we can get an actual bag, and we could write little slips on <laughs> it, and we could actually grab them out of the bag. Exactly. There you go. But only so, we would know because this is an audio-based platform. Yeah, we could just lie the whole time. We could just pull yeah. out. There is no bag. Never talk about it. We just or have a little too. spinner wheel <laughs> yeah. online. Yeah, there is nothing. Just hear the fake paper shuffling. We'll put it. All in right, and we our first, our there. first movie is going to be Napoleon. Oh, really, Scott? That's crazy. Yeah, just talking about that guy. So Napoleon came out towards the end of November during Thanksgiving, and. We both saw it, but there was mm-hmm. never really a time to talk about it on the show until now. So until now, you sort of give it away a little bit there with your feelings on Scott's most recent films. But what do you think, dude? I thought it was so dog shit. I thought it was so bad. <laughs> I thought it was one of. I thought it was one of the worst movies I've seen in theaters, and certainly the worst movie I saw in theaters this year, easily, hands down, dude. Abysmal. Dude, it was abysmal. <laughs> Dude, Ridley Scott. Battle sequences. House of Gucci and with Napoleon has battle sequences. Your, like, worst theater experiences. That's amazing. Battle sequences. Awesome. Fantastic. Oh, they were sure. great. The way he shot those battle sequences. Brilliant. Amazing. Is the only saving grace of this movie. But there's like three battle sequences in what is almost a three hour movie. So I am struggling to find any entertainment sitting in that theater. I am bored out of my my mind. I'm not entertained by Joaquin Phoenix's performance because he's just he's just a guy who leads France and is getting cucked the whole time. That's he's just it's just a cuck movie about Napoleon getting cucked. The 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 very what the sex scenes were so bad. Why'd they do that? Why they gotta why they got to put Joaquin Phoenix on there just slamming into Vanessa Kirby like that? Why they got to do that? Twice? Oh, God. Yeah, I will just, say, though, when he was... That's how they would actually have sex back then. That's historically accurate. That is how really would have made love. No, but I could imagine him saying it. Okay. Because <laughs> imagine someone bringing that up as a question like, why did you include such a sex scene that is so uncomfortable and hard to watch? Because it's supposed to be hard to watch. You twat. It's supposed to be historically like that's how Napoleon would have had sex with his concubines. Nobody cares. Nobody wants to see that shit. It's just it cuts. It it it's so ridiculous looking that it ruins any kind of image that I have of Napoleon as somebody that should be feared or respected as a leader of France. And it just makes me think of him as a cuck for the rest of the movie. And it happens like thirty minutes into the movie. So the rest of the movie, I'm just thinking, yeah, cool. He's this apparently this military genius even though i've only seen like two fucking battles and i don't even see him strategizing i just see him in the middle of the battle but all i'm thinking is this dude's getting fucking cucked pretty fucking hard and he's and he's and he's being a loser about it god I, I did not like this movie clearly so i'll agree with the battle sequences are incredible like that's fantastic would have loved more of the strategizing because the things that you know of Napoleon is one, he was a master tactician. Mm-hmm. And then two, he was short, the Napoleon complex thing. Yes. Which again, there's whole stuff about was he actually average height for Frenchmen at that time? It appears so. So it's, I think it is funny that 
some because i mean newspapers were around back then and the cartoons like those little comics political cartoons they would do mm-hmm. was there and so someone had it out for napoleon and exaggerated his lack of height i suppose and now that yeah. has become like one of the most prominent features of him and again mm-hmm. the napoleon complex being named after him um which i think ties in i guess somewhat with the whole cucking thing like is that what he was trying to showcase of he's so bent out of shape about that that he's trying to do all these impressive grand feats conquering europe to impress josephine kind of it seemed like that's what they were trying to hint at but they also didn't really delve into that too much that was the other aspect of it have this film is trying to be the like okay if you're gonna do a biopic about napoleon you have to have battle sequences so they did that um and it felt kind of obligatory because again they don't really deal with the strategizing the yeah up or the fallout i don't believe he's goes. a tactician i just believe he's a poster boy in front of the battle like there's nothing of him doing any kind of strategy other than him standing on a giant map with all these little figurines and him like knocking a few down and you're like okay whatever <laughs> yeah and so then they, like the only time he has like a, a strategy moment when he does the coup d'etat is he gets chased out and then he runs outside and he gets his brother and a bunch of soldiers he's like guys we need to go back in there and do something about this. And then they go in with guns and he's like, should we take a vote guys? I don't know. I don't like it. Yeah. The other half of the film is dedicated to the relationship with Napoleon and Josephine. Mm -hmm. And again, it was just, I don't know what to make of it. I don't know. Were they ever truly in love? Was she just, again, she just couldn't commit to him. Did she actually think he was a schmuck? Did she actually find those big actions that he was trying to do? His achievements respectable. Don't know. Um, the the thing that you brought up too of like he gets exiled and is able to come back and reverse the exile and retake ownership of France mm. before later he loses and then gets yeah. kicked out it's again. It's such an interesting but concept. Then they glaze over it. They glaze over it, but then it's also if the rest of the movie you're portraying him as like this loser, <laughs> like someone that just is unable to make right with his family life and all of that, and is having a lot of personal troubles. Um, how are we supposed to believe that on the battlefield and with his men and with the army that he is able to possess such charisma and command such respect from these people that they're going to let him back in and again, help him do yet another coup d'etat that part just doesn't compute. Like some of these amazing feats that he accomplishes, you need to showcase that he, there's something there. Like he didn't just stumble into this position and it is fascinating and, complex to be like oh the motivation for him doing all these incredible feats is an insecurity stemming from getting cut by joseph that would be a fascinating thing to like really dive into but it felt like this was more just to humiliate napoleon like do a hit piece on him 120 50 years after the fact or whatever it is um and it's like, why? Why is that the main focus rather than actually delving into the man behind the myth and behind the legend? Um, and so, I don't know, part of me was like, this film either needed to be entirely about Napoleon and Josephine and get to the bottom mm-hmm. of their complicated relationship. Because, I mean, there had to be, which again, I don't, I don't you can maybe fill in a bit more of the historical stuff because it was well known that Ridley Scott did not care about historical accuracy with it. Yeah, um, but it seems like for Napoleon Josephine, there's something there, but like how 
true is it? What other priorities did they have? Again, it didn't seem like Josephine was trying to use Napoleon to climb up the social ladder and become like empress. We never really see that that's an ambition of hers. Um, but then it's also like she's constantly being with these other men and not like remaining faithful. Napoleon also wasn't remaining faithful either. Um, but we're seeing that like complicated side of their relationship and these other things that they want and then that they're not able to give to each other, but just didn't feel fleshed out enough. Like it wasn't developed enough for it to truly hit home. I wasn't really invested in their relationship to feel anguished about things not going well for them. Um, Cause I mean, Napoleon was definitely caring a lot about what was going on, but again, Josephine didn't seem like all that upset about the direction of how things were going. Um, and when they eventually like divorce and things like that, like how did she take that? Like being demoted essentially from Empress, not being able to have an heir. Like there's just all these questions, despite it being again, a two hour and 40 minute movie of what did they really feel like? What was really going behind the scenes here? And that doesn't get answered. And it's a shame because it, it is a really complex, interesting story with uh, these fascinating characters at the center of it. But yet it just came off so flat um, and I, it's a shame again, the battle yeah. sequence is fantastic. Yeah, either that, it was like either choose that, the Josephine movie or choose the Napoleon, the conqueror movie and do one of those. And Ridley Scott, I think is more comfortable with the Napoleon, the conqueror thing, but he didn't really fully dive into it. So I'm not sure, but with the historical stuff, what were your opinions on that? Since you took AP, right. so what was your, uh, knowledge of the Napoleon Wars? I don't know much about the historical the historical inaccuracy of the film, but just watching it, I can tell that they are shortening so much. Because whenever you make a biopic where you cover the entirety of a person's life, and it's pretty much, at the very least, from him being a very low level military participant all the way to becoming all the way to his death, that majority of his life, if you're going to cover that much space and time in a movie, it is very hard to do it. So it's a lot easier when you're doing a biopic to just shrink it down to the most important parts of their life. And they just glaze over so much of Napoleon. And there's a lot of, I've read that there are a lot of historical inaccuracies and that it just, if you're going to make a movie and it's going to be historically inaccurate, it should at least be entertaining. Like I don't, I understand Ridley Scott's desire or his, his, disregard for historical accuracy for the sake of entertainment that's fine but it's not entertaining either because if i was to watch a movie that was historically accurate but not entertaining at least at the end of it i could say well i learned something because it like it was educational even mm -hmm. if i wasn't purely entertained or if i watched a movie that was not historically accurate but was very entertaining like the social network has a lot of gaps in it in terms of the actual story of mark zuckerberg but at least I was very entertained while I watched it. And I got a good story with like good character moments in it. At least I could say I was entertained at the end of it, even if I didn't learn exactly how it went. But to do the double whammy of being unentertaining and not even accurate is like baffling to me in the biopic world. To, to do that is insane. Maybe this is the kind of movie that really Scott enjoys watching. But this is not the kind of movie that I enjoy watching. It's just not fun. Not good, not entertaining, no character moments, no character development other than Napoleon is cuck. Napoleon must prove he not cuck 
Napoleon cannot prove he not cuck, so he just is cuck. Which is bad. There you go. Will you be watching the uh, four-hour cut going to Apple TV? Get the fuck out of here. Four <laughs> hours is crazy. I will watch I will watch four hours of battle footage of like Ridley Scott <laughs> battle footage in a heartbeat. Because that shit was sick as fuck. Yes. The shots of like the cannons, the cannonball like hitting the ice and then the, the soldiers drowning in the water. That was cool as hell. Cool as hell. It was fantastic. Yeah. The, Why couldn't like, half the movie be that? <laughs> Why couldn't half the movie be him strategizing and the other half be sick ass battle sequences where he, he where he succeeds? And then at the end he's just like, Well, couldn't do it every time. And then he dies. <laughs> he does the he does the sitting up on the bench and then just falls over to the side <laughs> move. Yeah, the Austerlitz battle sequence for sure. I mean that was top tier. And then I thought when he entered into an abandoned Moscow, was it? And then mm-hmm. it ends up burning later on. Yeah. I thought that was a pretty great sequence as well. Um, I also think, talking about, yeah, the historical inaccuracy. If you're going to be inaccurate, at least do something cool with it. Yeah. He did hit him with one great moment of Napoleon shooting the cannon into the Great Pyramids for no reason, no explanation. He's, Ridley Scott was like, that'd be a cool shot. And it was. It's really cool. So he had one thing in there that was at least entertaining. That was That's completely close. inaccurate. Um, but yeah. So how many cannonballs into a horse's heart out of five? One and a half. Wow. One and a half. I was in pain the entire time I was watching the movie, except for the battle sequences. Other than the battle sequence. Because, dude, the movie starts off and it's boring and it's slow. And then you get to that first battle sequence within like five, ten minutes. And you're like, all right. It's going to be good. Okay, this is pretty good. This is like pretty good. And the battle starts ramping up. You're like, all right, it's getting better. The horse gets a cannonball to the heart. You're like, all right, this shit's ramping up. This is pretty <laughs> epic. I'm enjoying this. They're sword fighting. They're shooting each other. I'm like, this is sick as fuck. And then from there, all the way until Austerlitz, I wanted to fucking kill myself. I was like, God damn it. This is terrible. Dude, when he... <sighs> when he just like... When he goes and like finds the gun for the kid, because like his dad died, and he was like, "Oh, I'll find a gun." And he goes, "This was your father's gun, even though it was just it's a big sword." Gun. Yeah. And then it just happens to be Josephine's son as well. And he's like, "Ooh, meet cute." Like, what the <laughs> fuck? Was that real though? We don't no, know. ain't no fucking way that was real. This is dumb as fuck. <laughs> um. All right, I'll give it a two point five out of five. So yeah, not a good film. No, but not a good film at all. Don't have the hatred for it as you did. This is something we... I can't wait now. We're dedicating an episode to Gladiator 2. Absolutely. Because we need to get your thoughts on it. House of Gucci. Hated. Your worst of the year. Yeah. And Napoleon. You hate it. Potentially worst of the year. So that's... Yeah. That's insanity. Uh, but you liked Last Duel. So again, it's hit or miss with them. We're on track now for a banger. For Ridley Scott. So maybe you'll like Gladiator 2. Either way. This is fantastic. I just never. Because you love The Martian. You love Thelma yeah. Louise. Yeah. He, Ridley Scott has some heavy bangers bro. Blade Runner. Uh, Thelma Louise like you said. Uh, I bet Black Hawk, Black Hawk Down is good. I just need to watch it. It seems good. All the footage I've seen looks awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, what else has he made? Uh, Alien. Fucking phenomenal. 
Like he's got some hits in there for sure. Even the last duel was entertaining. Like I can dig it, but it's very much hit or miss for Ridley Scott for me. Either he hits hard or he whiffs the ball, bro. Misses it by a fucking mile, and I hate it. It's a very love hate relationship with Ridley Scott for sure. Yeah, that'll be fun. It's different Prometheus. Prometheus year. was mid. Mm. Prometheus is the only movie I saw of his that I was like, uh, that and Gladiator were like, I'll give it a mid. I didn't hate it, but I didn't love it. Gotcha. Everything else is either I love it or I fucking hate it. <laughs> all I right. gotta see all the money in the world. Yeah, I'm thinking that might you might come down on that as a a miss. I haven't seen it, but I'm just assuming that'll be one uh, of yeah. those heavy misses. But uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that now. 2024, our Gladiator 2 episode. Yeah, that'd be great. The pod will be a banger, whether the movie will or not. We will see. Yeah. All right. So rewatch Gladiator, and I'll pop off about Gladiator again on the show. I popped off about it once. I'll do it again. Then I will gladly defend it yet again it's a great film all right leave the world behind from sam esmail who's the writer and director of course he was the creator of mr robot starring julia roberts ethan hawk mahershala ali and mihala harold so this was on netflix is an adaptation of a book dylan you did not watch it nope but from the premise and from the cast it was definitely one that i was highly anticipating much earlier in the year again it's uh this family with julie roberts and ethan hawk as the parents they go to an airbnb and then suddenly two people show up at their house claiming that it is their house that is being rented out for the airbnb and they need a place to stay for the night and while this is happening the internet has completely gone out So electricity is working, but the internet is completely out. And so with uh, these two people who actually own the house now sitting in for the night, they all have to figure out what is going on with the lack of internet and increasingly odd and bizarre occurrences and whether or not they can overcome their distrust of each other to figure things out and get through it. So basically, it's a disaster movie at the very start of the disaster where it's just people not knowing what's happening trying to figure it out but not having access to enough information so we don't get you know the perspective of the world governments that are able to understand what's happening we don't jump around to again certain people that are in positions where they'd be in the know it's just this family often an airbnb that's fairly secluded outside of you know new york city and they're trying to figure things out. So there's that element to it. I think the disaster movie set pieces that it had, which again, there's nothing crazy like a rogue wave destroying a coastline or things like that, but there are these odd occurrences that happen as a result of the internet being down. So there is one classic one of a plane falling out of the sky, but a more invincible one that I thought was an oil tanker that's just driving towards the coast. And they're sitting on the beach and they're watching and they're like, oh, that's odd. And then as it gets closer and closer, they're like, oh, this is not, this is not stopping and we got to get out of here. So I thought that was a a nice one and a different one, which was sort of bundled up with a bunch of other 
wacky things that were happening, but this one was the one that definitely stuck out. Dealt with a plane yet again. It was a crop duster type plane. So it was flying over this field. Ethan Hawke is driving towards the city, but he's lost and he doesn't know what's happening. And this plane just starts coming around and it's dropping something and we don't know what it is yet. Could be, again, like the chemicals or poison that's being dropped out of the, the canisters for the crop duster. But as it gets closer and closer to Ethan Hawke, we see that it's a bunch of pamphlets that are just raining down on him. And then, of course, it's it's something that's in a foreign language, and he doesn't know what it means, but it was a very ominous approach of that plane, like very North by Northwest vibes from it. So oh, yeah. things like that, I'm like, nice. That was great stuff. However, it being, you know, a suspense thriller, it does lean heavy into some of those like stylistic choices, the score, the camera angles. My man was trying to give the audience vertigo with some of these things. Um, so some of that I think works to create that atmosphere of uneasiness that the characters would be feeling as well of not knowing what's happening. But some of it is also just like, okay, we're just doing it just because he has the budget and the time to do it. Um, and it, I don't know, had diminishing returns at a certain point. But again, overall, I think the reveal that they have of like, what is the thing that is causing all this trouble? You can tell me because I'm not going to watch the movie. Well, I'll save it for our audience as well. We can talk afterwards about all it. Right. No. I thought um, it was pretty good. It was like a more realistic and because of that, very frightening look into how things can actually fall apart. Again, not like random solar waves hit us and then destroys everything like geostorm or all these other major major disaster films the day after tomorrow everything freezes exactly this one is more about like how does social ruin come about not natural disasters from the world attacking us um, but how does it all fall apart from within our own society i thought that was pretty great the issue though is they do have this element of like a natural disaster thing of these animals all acting extremely weird there's a bunch of deer that are just doing odd things just standing together in a herd in the backyard it just that was the one element that took me completely out of it because that gave it this supernatural feel like if you were watching it you would think oh like this could be aliens or this could be some other thing these very ungrounded sort of causes for the disaster but it's not that at all so then that leaves me wondering what is actually causing those deer to be all crazy. There's a, like literally Julia Roberts and um, the one daughter character uh, played by Mihala Harold. Again, butchering that name. But those two, they have a stare down and then a scream match screaming at the deer uh, later on. And again, it's like 50 deer just standing there looking at them in the woods. And I'm like, what? what is this? It doesn't match well with the rest of the film at all in the tone. Um, and that goes to the other major show I had which it, with it, which was there felt like there was a lot of unintentional campiness to it. Like, there are definitely some things that are meant to be laugh lines, but a lot of it feels like it's played straight and they're trying to be very profound with it. But then some things, like the deer... There's this encounter with Kevin Bacon later on in the film that felt very 
contrived. Um, like it wasn't understanding why we went from zero to 99 so quickly with that thing. Again, it felt like it should have been like a in the no satire, but it felt like it was being played straight. Like, oh, this is serious and this is actually tense. And I'm like, it's it's not. So that was upsetting for uh, the enjoyment purposes. But for the most part, I thought it was good at creating the the feelings of unease and you're trying to piece together things and it doesn't ever give you the full picture. Like we get to an understanding of what the characters think happen with a pretty good, you know, they have a bit of knowledge that would allow them to make a really solid prediction with it. And again, Kevin Bacon's character, who is, you know, a doomsday prepper, has some info as well that allow them to put things together. But overall, I think that approach to it, of you don't ever actually know what's happening. And it's not about like, surviving these crazy disasters, but just trying to figure out what is going on. And the fear of that, I think was really well executed. As a side note, they have a, there's the, a different daughter character, the one for Julia Roberts and Ethan Hawke's characters. She, her whole thing in this uh, film is just trying to watch the last episode of Friends. She's just trying to watch the last episode. She's a fanatic for Friends. When the internet went out, she wasn't able to finish the last one. So she's just trying to find a way to watch that final episode of Friends. And she also has an extended sequence where she just quotes uh, a story from the West Wing. So she's a Friends and Man, West you were, Wing You were eating. And you, I was like, eating. yes. I'm like, she's a real one. You are gobbling go. that down. Exactly. So I thought that was great. Um, but yeah, pretty solid. Not re- reaching the expectations that I had for it. Again, it was one of my most anticipated for the year. But was still, it really? mostly enjoyable time yeah um so i'll give it a three uh random autopilot tesla crashes out of five that was another one of the set pieces which i thought in concept was like kind of cool but in reality just felt like okay it was just like 18 white teslas all suddenly arriving in the same place at the same time to crash just to point out like hey the autopilot on these cars may not be the best thing, which I feel like we all definitely know. But yeah, yeah three out of five. All right. My next movie that I'm going to talk about is a movie you haven't seen. It's A24's Dream Scenario starring uh, Nicolas Cage. So the basic plot of the movie is that Nicolas Cage is this tenured professor about like a biology professor at some kind of like mid-tier university. And he's wanted to write a book his whole life, like a research book, but he just never does it. And he keeps putting it off. And so he feels like a failure at the beginning of the movie. And then he slowly realizes that like, like a large portion of the population is like seeing him in their dreams. Like he's not doing anything. He's just physically in the dream. So people in his class, people he knows in his life, random people he sees on the streets, they just are having dreams about him. So he very quickly becomes like this big time celebrity in in the whole world because everybody's just dreaming about him and so all this attention he's getting just starts to go to his head and then it gets it gets really i don't want to spoil too much because i want you to just go in not knowing too much but it's really good it is it is very very funny nicholas cage has some really good funny moments and the character like the story that the characters go on is is 
very, very uh, realistic and relatable in a way that like it is an unrelatable feeling to be so famous and like to have the withdrawals of that like the the pros and cons of that feeling of being super super famous being one of the most recognizable people recognizable people on the planet and at the same time like as an everyday man who doesn't feel that experience we can relate to what that's like to be so famous and have that draw and also it, it is a little bit of commentary on cancel culture but in a way that doesn't feel forced or contrived it, like it reaches the conclusion that it gets to very, very easily that these people that we idolize or that we imagine or that we literally dream about are are not what they are in our head. They are someone completely different and they do have flaws and we can recognize their flaws, but that is not the same flaws that we picture that they have sometimes in it's, it's like trying to separate reality from what we imagine in terms of these celebrity figures and judging them for what is real and not judging them for what is not so like i think it's good commentary in that regard without being too like forced but at the same time even though it's it's making that very strong commentary it's also a very human story for nicholas cage's character who goes through this very very bizarre and one-of-a-kind experience and it's also just so goddamn funny it is really really funny i would love to watch it with you because it was like I was alone in a theater watching this and I was out loud laughing multiple times. Like not just like 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 heavy exasperated silent like, thing like like something like that. I was out loud like laughing in the theater cuz it was so fucking funny. Yeah, it's one that I wish I could have caught uh but unfortunately things just didn't line up. Again, it was one of those that it was in theaters for just a little blip of time and then it was it was gone. So. It's just such a, an interesting idea, and it's so bizarre, and it's very, very goofy. It's a but great it concept. Like, yeah, it's, it's a great, very, very good concept. And, and having Nick Cage through. as the, the main yeah. character for it is a stroke of genius, for sure. Yeah. The follow-through is incredible as well. Like, like the finished product from what is already a good idea is really, really well done. So I give high props to this movie, and I'm going to give it a four-and-a-half oversized David Byrne suits out of five. Wow. High praise, interesting. High praise. I thought it was very, very good. Yeah, that's great. We might be seeing that on the top 10 list for the you year. Might. Nice, good stuff. I'll definitely have to try and check it out if it hits streaming soon enough. Hopefully it will. But let's talk about our next film, which is on streaming. Another Netflix exclusive, The Killer from David Fincher. And of course, starring Michael Fassbender, so this film, which was an adaptation from, I believe, a graphic novel, mm-hmm. we see Fincher returning to the realm of killers, assassins, serial killers, all that jazz. So back into that genre mix. Dylan, what yeah. did you think of this film? I thought it had the potential to be something great, and it did not have that follow through. I was... Mm-hmm. I was not enthralled by the story. I did not like the voiceover at all, even <laughs> though that's like, that is like the whole gimmick of the movie is that you have this voiceover of an assassin who's describing his emotions towards the job in what would otherwise be a very cold character that you wouldn't hear this from. So you hear his internal monologue. But to me, I just was so, like, it just sounded like, 
very cringy and very like <laughs> it like it was like it was like if I was watching a movie where somebody was trying to make fun of David Fincher kind of films and that was the monologue they would use that's the monologue they would use right. it's like this is something that David like like it's like a David Fincher parody but he did it himself and it was real and yeah. it was just it was too far too much and too heavy and I just I also just did not care about the character of the killer himself enough to be with him on this journey. And then there are also some technical issues I had with it. Like the fight scene he has with the big guy in Florida, albeit a great setup of like, he's in Florida and he's got to like do a bunch of Florida shit. It's kind of funny, but the fight scene itself was so dark. I could not see what the fuck was going on. It reminded me a lot of the, the, not as badass, but reminded me of the episode of game of Thrones in the last season where you can't see shit. Similarly, I couldn't see shit. Fascinating. I really liked that house fight. I did notice, I mean, it was less well lit um, than a lot of the other things, but I think it was also intentional to have most of that be in shadow. You're just seeing these like figures. So it's reduced to big behemoth man versus the comparatively smaller Michael Fassbender, who, although he's crazy ripped in this film, like that man's insane. Yeah. Um, so I thought that like zero percent really well. Yeah, it's absurd. So despite having his uh you know McDonald's meals and whatnot, so mm-hmm. I think that was a fantastic fight scene. Um, and then I agree with you about the, which I do think is intentional to like cringy sort of stock phrases of this uh, serial killer. Well, not serial assassin hitman. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's like in that vein of like trying to detach yourself and be entirely cold. Um, but then like the also he's quoting different people, like having these self-help mantras in his back pocket as well. But he mixes them up sometimes and doesn't know who actually said what. Um, so I think that stuff honestly worked well for me because initially it was a bit I was having a negative reaction to it at first. But as it went on, I think it was serving its purpose, which is to be a nod and a wink at how people would try and write these sort of mantras. Like it's him, the killer himself is like trying to do that. Like he's trying hard to be a David Fincher character. I Um, think, I think the initial bit of him doing like a full 12 minute sequence of just straight going about his business, planning a hit and doing that full monologue of like cringy, funny, sort of like what you expect an assassin to think in his mind sort of dialogue. And then to end that bit with he fucks up the hit and goes, Oh shit. I think that (laughs) bit, the build up to that is good. But then to carry that through the rest of the movie is just too much. No, I think it, I think it's had its place because it is reduced. Like the very beginning part is definitely where the bulk of the narration is coming in. And then a lot of the rest of it, sort of trims it down to again some of those phrases we heard before uh those rules that he has for himself you know like stick to plan anticipate don't improvise forbid empathy is a big one that he he brings up a lot but i think we need that because we need to be reminded of this code of contact conduct that he's supposedly holding himself to but that at every turn he's breaking like he's either extremely bad at his job or he's extremely bad at the rules he's setting and therefore is causing him to slip up in this really like bad week on the job. So I thought that was also really clever stuff. 
and it's one of those things too where again fincher is a victim of it but you can see where people would be like gravitating to this character like one of those quote-unquote literally me characters yeah um which again is only funny if it's tongue-in-cheek but some people literally do take it as like a literally me character which is not funny it is funny though when they do that to characters like this that are meant to be pathetic in a way like he's again he's messing up constantly in this film um and so i wish it was i wish it was more on the nose that he's fucking up like the the bit where he shoots the wrong person that was very on the nose i thought it was funny i was like because it's unexpected he's doing all these rules he seems like he knows what he's doing he seems very professional and then he fucks up literally immediately and it's just kind of funny <laughs> but then the rest of the movie the fuck ups are very very subtle and i wish there were more consequences to him messing up and i wish he bungled things more often because for the most part by the end of the movie, he has done what he needs to do, and he has done it well enough. But I wish he really fucked up more, because it would just be funny. Yeah, he still gets the job done, but there are there are those things where, like, when he shoots uh, the one guy with the nail gun, mm-hmm. and he's like, yeah, you've, you've got about, like, seven minutes left, and then he dies right there on the spot, and he's like, oh, crap. Like, I was supposed to have more time to interrogate him and make him confess. Um, so there's there are those elements where you do see him mess up in a pretty big way. But, yeah, there's always a way around it, and he does ultimately achieve his goal at the end of it but i do think he maintains his serious seriousness throughout the movie if it was more like a i don't know if if it felt more like a coen brothers movie where he has this serious goal but is just such a a doofus at it i feel like i would have had more fun with the movie and would have enjoyed it more as this thing of like he is he might be a professional what he does but he's just fucking up he's just fucking up so bad constantly like i feel like the coen brothers probably would have made it. it would have been a lot campier and a lot funnier and I think I would have enjoyed it more instead of trying to hit the dark tone in a movie that doesn't need that dark tone. Right. There is that. Yeah. Fincher has that darker tone, the coldness to the film overall, but there's what I think is a great touch is having that subtle line of humor underneath all of it of him. I wish it was less being subtle. bad at the job, but yeah, I, I, I can see that point, but I feel like it works even more like his self seriousness and especially with like the mantras and all that makes the juxtaposition of him messing up constantly work better. Like, I feel like it being more on the nose, um, it just wouldn't hit as hard because then it'd be like, okay, well, it is so blatant that he's not good at it. Um, so him like lying to himself in this way is so outrageous. But if he is able to still succeed each step of the way, but yet we're seeing how, oh, well, he he says forbid empathy, but he did kill that one woman in a way where she'd be able to get the life insurance for her kids like okay so he's not succeeding in all these goals like he's not a cold-blooded killer all the time entirely there's something else here or i mean it wasn't subtle at all the nail gun thing i thought that was a nice way to bring that up of getting him thinking yeah i got time and then yet dude had punctured lungs and dies immediately so he's unable to get the info out of him like those little bits, I think work better if it is him being so so serious for most of the time, which is funny. But ultimately, I mean, I've been like praising the film a lot. I didn't like it that much. I thought the coldness and the like darker tone. It's very process oriented, so we're just with him all the time as he's doing these little planning sessions, or he's just hiding out in his hotel room, or walking through the airport, things like that. And yeah. it is very immersive, but it drags. 
but it does drag a bit. And like you, I didn't have that emotional connection with the killer to let me be okay with like going through such detail of every little step of his day. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and I feel like they had that opportunity. They had, they showed us the, his girlfriend or wife or whoever it is that he uh, was living with um, that he cares for. And so there was that potential emotional attachment that we could form, but we don't really see that. I mean, they're in the hospital, he visits her and then he's on his way to getting revenge right after that. So we don't really get to see like the more human sides of him, which again, I feel like is part of the intent here, but it just made it more difficult to attach to his character and to his quest and to again anytime he's like plotting out his next course of action or munching on a meal or sitting out staking out in a car it's like all right do we need all five minutes of this or could we have punched through it a little bit quicker um yeah that was the thing that was holding me back a lot for it yeah I didn't like that that much either. It, it does drag quite a bit at certain points. But I just, I don't know, man. There's just not much notable about it that like I can remember. And it's something that like sticks with me that I think is good. And also he's just so remorseless about everything, which is the point. Like he is a killer and he is remorseless and that's why we're watching it. But there is no point. There's like small points of empathy that don't even really count. He still kills a taxi driver who did fucking nothing, bro. I know that was hardcore. And he that was truly hardcore. had no remorse for that. Like just in the middle of the sentence. He killed him and walked him. away. Yeah. Yeah. And the 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 lawyer the lady who, who worked for the lawyer, yeah, he, he's technically a criminal. And yes, she knew about it. And yes, she's involved in the operation to some degree. But like Still remorseless, I guess. That, that doesn't bug me as much as the taxi driver, but still. Taxi driver did nothing, man. He did nothing. Yeah, the taxi driver was vicious. And again, I think there's something to be said that, like, the actual guy that put the original hit out, the rich guy, doesn't die in the end. Like, that's the one person Which is crazy. Spared, which, partially, it's the practicality of, like, he was made by the camera going into it. So he's like, oh, I can't actually kill him. Um but then also it's it's just the fact that, yeah, he had mentioned as well, like, oh, the cops are going to be more interested in this person that dies versus, you know, that taxi driver, for instance. So there's something there. He mentions quite a bit of like the few and the many. And I think the last line is him saying like, oh, I'm one of the many. And like relinquish himself to not being one of the invincible members of society. And even though he was like this hitman, even though we can see him go on this path of destruction, he isn't the one in the most power. Um, he's still like just not able to control the situation the way that he wants. So I think there's something to that as well. So like upon reflection, there's I think more to the film that I like than I initially thought. It was just like watching it. I do remember distinctly like the feeling of being like, oh, like get on with it, like let's go. Yeah. So I do dig the soundtrack though. Love the Smiths. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's a great component too. Um, yeah, when it was, when he was listening to that to calm himself down, there were a lot of cool, yeah, little moments here and there. Like the, he was trying to get his heartbeat down to 60 beats per second, right? Um, 
and then he kept you can see as it's through the scope he keeps looking over to the one girl that's scantily clad dressed and he's like no gotta stay focused gotta turn over to the actual target um another way to showcase like yeah he is human and isn't this cold killing machine as he would like to be there are moments that yeah are really good so maybe as they get more and more distance from it it'll raise up even higher i'm going to stick with what my initial rating was after i'd seen it um, but it might be able to bump up at least a half star sometime mm-hmm. soon but i'm giving it 2.5 uh mcdonald's meals without the what did he take off it was like the the bread he took off and he was just eating the meat and the cheese yeah no carbs yeah, yeah gotta get rid of the carbs. Meat and cheese from mcdonald's gotta be lean yeah uh, i'm gonna give it three you're giving it three. Yeah, I'm giving it yeah. 2.5. But I think, again, like I'm, I'm leaning closer and closer to three. And so it yeah. might eventually bump up there. Another thing that I thought was great was Tilda Swinton, that whole conversation. Um, I thought that was pretty great. Well, Tilda Swinton's great in everything. It's Tilda For Swinton. Sure. She's great in everything. Come on. So it was great to see her arrive. But that whole, the construction of that scene as well. And then the aftermath when we see that she was actually going to try and kill him with a knife. I thought it was great. Yeah. yeah. Now, my next film that I'm going to talk about is one that I've been dying to talk to you about. It's Anatomy of a Fall. Now, are you it's sure you want to? Because I'm, I'm imagining this will be on your top ten list, so don't go it will, too into depth. It will. I won't go too into depth. I just need to talk about it now. I need to talk about it now. <laughs> Bro, this movie is so fucking good. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. Because it is not overly complicated it is a death has occurred and there is a court case and you are purely a witness to the court case and you know very little information and information is being revealed to you as if you were a member of that jury because you just know so little the twist is is it is a wife her husband has died we do not know how he died whether he was pushed out of a window or he fell out of a window, that is not clear. But the only witness to what happened or who was around at the time was the couple's son who was also blind. So that already is very intriguing. But like, not only, not only are we like involved in the emotions of the mother who's on trial and the son who is the only witness and all of that and like feeling those emotions of like what that is like, all at once, we are in the midst of the trial as it's going on, and it is exhilarating. You know I love court movies. You know I love legal movies. You know I For love sure. that. And it is the best courtroom drama, the highest caliber, highest quality of courtroom drama you could possibly imagine. I was enthralled. Not only is it gorgeously shot, it is brilliantly written, and it is tremendously acted by Sandra Huller. She is fantastic in this movie like start to finish incredible in this movie just playing Mm -hmm. that role of someone who is on trial for something so horrible just trying so hard to defend herself it is so so great and i thoroughly enjoyed it and i will talk more about it in depth because it will guarantee it it will be in my top 10 if not my top five not my top three and so you and I will talk about it in that episode, and you will have seen it by then, and we'll be able to go in-depth with spoilers and everything. Hopefully. I mean, it's not in theaters at the moment. I don't know how I'm going to see it. Is it on streaming somewhere or what? 
I'll I will I will find you a way. I will find a way for you to watch it. It will happen. Well, it's gonna legal means we will. It, there is we, we talked about this last week. There is a very likely chance that it will be nominated for best picture. In my opinion, not necessarily yours, but in my opinion, there's a good chance it'll be nominated for best picture. And if that happens, best pick. If that happens, it will be in theaters. That's true, but not in time for our top ten list. You think? When are we gonna do it? Well, because they only put it in theaters. I don't think they're gonna put it in theaters just for the Oscar nomination announcement. Yeah, they uh, do. And then when does that happen, though? G- like second week of January, third week of January. Oh, that's when yeah. voting starts. Voting ends in the first week of January. Ooh, yeah, we'd, have, we'd have to see about that. But be- when are we gonna do our top ten list? Because I still haven't even seen like half the movies I need to watch to be able to make that list. It's like mid January take- is usually when we do it gonna take some time man i'm a little behind this year which is crazy because i've seen a lot already but i'm still there's just so much that i want to see this year that i'm kind of behind yeah i'm still filling out my list too i mean again it definitely it won't happen before the 15th that's for sure yeah but yeah we will see hopefully i will be able to catch it in some way shape or form but you will you will anatomy of fall high praise from dylan highest of praise so the next thing we'll talk about is in a movie, it's a show on Disney Plus, Percy Jackson and the Olympians. We talked a bit about that when the trailer had dropped. So far, I've seen the first two episodes. They released it with the first two episodes. And what I will say, it's definitely a family show. So it is for the young chigens you can bring along to watch with you, uh, which I think is fair. You know, I mean, it started out as... I don't even think it was a young adult at that time. It was like just like a kid's book, a middle grade book. Um, so it makes sense that they're they're going with that tone. Um, however, it does mean, yeah, there's some very explicit on the nose dialogue and some hand holding through some of the things. Um, and then the pacing I also noticed is it feels really quick. Um, the episode count for the season is eight, I believe. And then they're doing the thing again. I don't know why Disney Plus does it. It's really like this is maybe something that should definitely be standardized from the old network broadcast days. But runtime of the episodes also shifts here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, and I saw that episode three is also going to do that because that's been released so far. I haven't watched it yet. But they just got to make it again, like either go to 30 minutes or go for the hour or go for the 42 minute, you know, network TV. Time how how inconsistent is it? Because I remember not as bad as Mandalorian. <laughs> yeah, Mandalorian was all over the place. Like we're talking like twenty minutes to forty five minutes for no reason. Yeah, I mean some of those were even bigger changes. And then of course it always had the the closing credits would be like eight minutes or ten minutes, so you never know what the actual content you're getting. Um, but I think this this next one, either three or it was episode four or something like that was, I think it's under thirty minutes which is absurd. And then I think the first one was 48 minutes. Like it was trying to hit that 50 minute mark. And I think the second one was 40 minutes. It's not too crazy at first, but again, it's like it's in the 30 to, 50 to go to 30. And that's like, what are y'all doing? So yeah, that was a little much. And I feel like they did need a more extended runtime, at least for these, this first one, just so we could have a little mm-hmm. bit more breathing room uh, for some of the stuff. But overall, I will say, especially if you're a fan of like mythological stuff or of the books themselves. I think it is, it's a fun time. 
Again, it's not yeah. going to be groundbreaking stuff, but it's just an enjoyable, you know, sort of spectacle type IP. And so it's nice. And the kids, I, I think, are solid. I think Grover, honestly, has impressed me the most so far, acting wise. Um, they're just for Anna Beth has only been in half an episode so far, at least that I've seen. She like is only in half of the back half of episode two, but she seems really good so far. And then the main kid, Walker Scobell, playing Percy. There are times where I'm like, he's got it. Like he's absolutely commanding the role. And then other times where I'm like, I want a bit more intensity. But I think that might just be, again, this was the first two episodes. Maybe he's getting into the role. So as it progresses, he'll be a bit more confident. And we'll also get to see a bit more of the uh, humorous side to him. Because again, mm -hmm. the first two episodes, much like the first few chapters of Mercy, is my man is just getting hit with every bad thing that could happen. And then just his whole world is upturned from being a demigod and going to this camp and then having to get sent on a quest to get the lightning bolt because they think he took it. So man's going through it. So man's is going through it. Yeah. He doesn't have a lot of time to, you know, chill out and just, just be, and also to let his humor fly. But yeah. I think we'll see more of that. So I'm, I'm like in the cast, but again, it's like, I haven't yet seen them as a trio. And so that'll be the make or break thing of, do they have the chemistry all together? But I think they will. So mm -hmm. we'll continue watching. Um, but yeah, a nice, light little show. All right, last but not least, I saved the best for last year. Last night, I was finally able to get around to watching Five Nights at Freddy's. <laughs> it was very late. I was with some friends. We still wanted to hang out. We decided to throw in a scary movie. Five Nights at Freddy's was suggested. We said, sure, it's on Peacock. Let's watch it. Peacock finally came in handy. <laughs> Uh, and, uh, I gotta say, it was the worst movie I've seen this year. It was worse <laughs> than Napoleon. So something did it. Napoleon is not going to be the worst movie of the year. It's going to be Five Nights at Freddy's. But that's only because, to be fair, I have not seen every movie that came out this year. I'm sure there was something worse than Five Nights at Freddy's. But of the movies I've seen, which there is a very high bar, Five Nights at Freddy's was god-awful. <laughs> Look, what sucks... What really makes me hate it so much is that it is a good premise, like the video game itself, and then adapting that video game is a good premise. Yeah. And the character arc they tried to give to Josh Hutcherson's character, who's the main character, was also a good premise. Like that was invented for the movie, not from the video games. Mm -hmm. And they gave him like an actual arc that he could follow that would have been good if they had like put two ounces of brain work into it and thought. But they didn't, and they flubbed so fucking hard. Are you ever going to watch it, Ryan? I've seen it. What? Yeah. What? Yeah. When did you watch Five Nights at Freddy's? Because uh, it was always on Peacock, so sometime near Halloween, like obviously it came out, I think, on Halloween or something like that, which is a choice. Um, but within the week after that, I think I watched it, just because... There's so much discussion around it, and I was like, let me uh, let me be in the know about this. All right, then we're going to really get into it now. Dude, okay. <laughs> Josh Hutcherson's character, wanting to, like, feeling guilty about his brother getting kidnapped, 
and wanting to delve into his dreams to try and uncover that memory to see if there's anything there is inherently not a very bad idea and could have been really good had they developed it more, especially with the fact that there are those dead missing children who are popping up in his dreams when he falls asleep at Freddy's. I think Mm -hmm. that's not bad inherently, and they could have made that something very interesting. I will say I think the dream part of that is bad inherently. The whole premise really? of feeling guilt about the brother and then wanting to like try and still solve that and being hung up on it, good. Him trying to do that by taking sleeping pills and thinking he's going to discover something in his dream, that is just insane. <laughs> That's ridiculous. And it's just so that they can get the whole like little kids, the ghosts, into his dreams later on. And I'm like, That's absurd. Like, maybe as a point of desperation, someone will get to the point where they're like, if I can just dream it, I can find something I never noticed before. But really like that's just such a bonkers concept but i agree the character arc that they wanted to give to him is something like having to actually uh invest in the child that is there that he is taking care of rather than the boy that's now gone like his younger brother so Yeah. yeah in our opinion from our viewing we thought that vanessa's character was the most egregious we hate it terrible we hated her so much it was so bad we were, we were critical of her being a really bad, shitty police officer. We were critical of all of her dialogue and everything she had to say. We were critical of any motivation that she had. And then when they finally gave the twist that she... I'm just going to spoil everything. When they finally gave the twist that she is the daughter of the killer, it just... Like, some things make more sense, but more than that, it just makes it look stupid. Like, it's like... You're explaining things that I didn't, I thought were dumb inherently, and then with a twist that I also think is dumb inherently. Yeah. So just because you explain things doesn't mean it make it better. It just made it worse. It's just dumb. Well, yeah, it made no sense why. Again, what was going on there? So she knows that the dad is a killer. Her dad is a killer and has killed these. The implication is that she's in on it. animatronics. Yeah, she's in on it. He implies that she's in on it. Warn him, Josh Hutcherson, but she doesn't just outright tell him. So leaving him be in this potentially dangerous situation with the daughter, or not with his daughter, I guess his little sister, but with the little girl. And so he's, so she has them playing around with the animatronics at one point, right? They're like building those uh, blanket forts, Mm -hmm. and then (laughs) like hard cut to them out in the parking lot. And she's like, don't you ever bring that girl here again or I will shoot you. And it's Dude, like, I will shoot you is crazy. She's a police officer. Dude, we we thought that was insane. Because before that, she does the scene of where she shows up at his house and she's like, you know, any damages to Fast Bears you are criminally liable for and I will have to arrest you. And we were like, that's crazy that he's a security guard at a place and it gets robbed when he's not even on duty and you're going to arrest him. That is insane to me. And so to follow that up with a scene where she says, if you take her here again, I will shoot you. When all we know about her character is that she is an officer of the law is insane. Yeah. And also the fact that she was the one that was encouraging the girl to hang out with the animatronics. Dude. Like the scene before that. So it makes no sense. It's insane. So yeah, why would she be in the know about everything with the dad, but then not outright warning the uh, Josh Hutcherson? Like, it makes it seem like, so at one point she was okay with it, or she was not okay with it, but she's just going along with it. Like, that made no sense. Why were the kids, why did they suddenly, like, they had said that he has a power over them and will make them now be malignant and start attacking the girl. I wish they explained that more. 
Yeah, and it's like I don't think that was because the, the idea video. of I, I think the idea of William Atherton being like this serial killer predator who killed these children. I feel like the idea of him having power over them in the afterlife could make sense if you explained it well enough. Because like he was an individual who had power over them when they were alive. It could make sense that he is a person who has power over them in the afterlife if he has like convinced them so. But they don't spend any time really diving into any of that stuff. They just glaze over it very, very lightly. And then they're like, it's the pictures. And I'm like, what? You could have just, there was, it was just a very light way to explain all that. And I did not enjoy it. I also didn't like the plot twist that the, the career counselor is also the serial killer when he has very little presence in the rest of the movie. If he had more of a presence, because it doesn't, it doesn't make zero sense. It just doesn't make enough sense considering his presence in the movie to inherit a twist that is that shocking. If he was in the movie more and more of an important character, it would make more sense and it would be more entertaining that way. And I wouldn't be upset by that twist, but he's barely in the fucking movie. Yeah. I mean, I think they just, they're like, Oh, it's Matthew Lillard. You know, he's going to be the guy at the end of it. So yeah. I don't even think he was good to too at the end of it. He wasn't way. good. He wasn't good in his first scene, but at the end of it, he was. Yeah, he was hamming it up in the best way there. I love when he hams it up, bro. Yeah, so, dude. In Scream, you've never seen the first Scream, have you? I have. Bro, him hamming it up at the end of Scream is so good. It's fantastic. Yeah, it's so good. So Five Nights at Freddy's, dude. I didn't even think. Movie. I didn't even think. I thought the idea of them making like real suits for people to be in when they're filming the movie was a good idea. But the fact that I'm watching the movie and it still just looks like the whole thing is animated, why did they design it to look like that? Um, I'm not sure what you mean. I thought the animatronics looked good. It looked like it was CGI, like the whole thing, top to bottom. And I wish, I wish they had designed the suits to look more like what I think a Chuck E. Cheese animatronic looks like in my head. It just looks too smooth, in my yeah, opinion. They, they smoothed it out. They, they need it. to rough it up a bit. Yeah, they need to age it a bit. Um, the fox looked good, but because yeah. he was a little rougher looking. But the other ones were just too smooth. They should have roughed them up a bit and dirtied them up a bit. I would have found that more entertaining. But I didn't like how smooth they were. I also didn't think it was that scary, like at all. No. It not was even not slightly. scary in the slightest, which I, was which like, I understand. <laughs> I understand that it's it's like appealing to younger audiences, but you don't have to make it gory to make it scary. It could still just be scary, and it just wasn't. Yeah, I thought the whole like they missed the point of the first video game at least before it all went to like the lower focus. But it was just a very simple premise, and it was like the atmosphere of it. Like yeah. it has the jump scares, but that's not really the scariest part it's the tension of oh you've got a certain amount of time to like with your batteries so a certain amount of time that you can check the cameras and then you know they're coming at you somehow so you gotta close the door do this this and that like they built it up so well at least in that first video game of the suspense being from just the unknown when are they going to come at you and trying to clock it clock their movements and stop it from happening they don't even have like a nod to that in the film. I think they have him look at the cameras once, but most of the time he's just sleeping there. He's just sleeping through the night 
um, to try and, you know, dream up the scenario with his brother and find something new. And so they never even do a thing where they're stalking him through the halls or they're just walking through the halls trying to get to the office to get at him. I feel like they should have, at least for this first film, they should just stripped it down to be that, like have him get locked in there. Maybe again, somehow the girl has to go with them, but have him actually be locked up in there. Uh, and at least for one night, like they could have done that for yeah. one night at least. And There's then- five nights, man. You couldn't yeah. do one night where it was actually scary. He's there <laughs> for five nights and not one of them could be scary, bro. That's crazy. Yeah. So very odd how they uh, decide to approach it. Um, yeah. But again, it, it opened very well. I think a lot of the fans were pleased by it, but people come into it that aren't hopped up on the lore. I just don't know what there is for this because it, it's, it's not that scary. The lore isn't that interesting or at least well told in this. Again, they just do it in exposition dumps from the Vanessa character. Uh, and so... That's not that great. Again, a lot of the dialogue wasn't very sharp. Uh, not a lot of the acting was great. Um, although, yeah, I mean, for the kids, they're blameless, I suppose. But Josh Hutcherson was fine. Matthew Lillard, again, definitely fine when he was hamming it up at the end. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the actress for uh, Vanessa in particular was not. not I, I can't she blame her, bro. Any, I can't blame her. Edit her, her, the dialogue. Her, her character her. and her dialogue. There was just nothing you could do. It's not her fault. It was just, there's just nothing you could do with a part that's just written so poorly. Yeah. With no character to it. She was doing the best she could. How many, how many, uh, how many uh, half eaten babysitters do you give this movie? <laughs> jump, 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 jump. Uh, I think it was a, I don't remember, 1.5, maybe one, 1.5. I gave it a solid one. Yeah. Not going any higher than that. I just, Found very little entertainment out of it. It was like a turn my brain off and watch it kind of movie, but then my brain kept clicking on when I didn't want it to and to tell me that this is bad. <laughs> my brain would come on and go, wait, that's not right. They shouldn't be doing that. And I'd be like, shut up, brain. Just enjoy the stupidness. And it'd be like, no, you can't do that. You can't just ignore it. It's just so bad. Yeah. Really, really bad. Are you looking forward to Five Nights at Freddy's 2? Because there's got to be a sequel. <laughs> there's got to be a sequel. They're definitely going to make a sequel. I mean, yeah, just to, uh, this is one of those movies where you have to watch it, I think, with friends will be the, the main way to watch it and just be like. Yeah, if I had watched that alone. Unintentionally if I, bad it is. If I put on Peacock and tried to watch it on my own, I probably would have not have finished it. I would have turned it off after like 30 minutes. But because I was watching it with friends, I was able to get through it because we were making fun of it for yeah. all fucking night. For all, yeah, every, the, every single problem. Proper viewing experience. And also at home so that you're not. In the theater with the rabid FNAF fans. That would be a nightmare. That would be the scary part. Yeah. <laughs> so there we go. There's our grab bag. That's all of it. That's all the time we have. If you'd like to give your thoughts on the show, you can email us at theboxofficeshowpod at gmail.com. Our main title theme for the show is Sundown by Joseph McDade. If you like the show, please give us five stars on whatever podcast app you're listening to, and be sure to tune in next week. Have a great